Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you packed in here on the purple chairs. Um, it uh, It is good to be here together. I'm Caleb. I'm the lead pastor here if we haven't had a chance to meet yet. And uh, I want to start by showing you a uh, verse. You'll see in your bulletin, if you grab this, there's an outline on one side here. And we do this weekly just to help you kind of track and keep track on where we are. Uh, And some of you play tic-tac-toe and other things like that, and that's cool. I don't take offense. Uh, But you'll also see this little card in there. A few weeks ago, it was a weekend that I wasn't here, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, something like that. And uh, I was at a retreat with other leaders of the Mariners' churches, and we were talking and praying about uh, a verse, because there's a tradition in our Mariners' churches that we kind of rally around one particular verse from the Bible for the year. And so for 2016, this is the church verse that we feel like God kind of directed us to. It's 1 Corinthians 2.9, and it says this, No eye has seen... No ear has heard and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And so that is the verse that that we believed God has for us in this next year. And it's a verse of excitement and hopefulness and optimism. And we don't even even entirely know what it means. Uh, We don't even know what he's going to do. We'll know looking back on what he was talking about and why he directed us there. I mean, we do know that we're moving toward this new movie theater, uh, the Regency movie theater that will be taking over. Painful, kind of patient process that we've been in, but there's great progress being made. I'll tell you, in uh, I think it's two more weeks, we'll, we're going to unveil this website that'll have details and stuff that you'll appreciate. Uh, but all that is good and going in the right direction. We know that that is coming, but there's so much more for our church and I believe for you personally. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can imagine what God has in store for you. So I'd encourage you, if you want to you know, join us on that, just to memorize that verse and just have, a, have an expectancy because it's going to be fun to see what God does this year. Now, we're continuing in our series called The Art of Relationships, and we've been looking at uh, these famous verses uh, from the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, even if you've never been in church before, you've heard some of these verses because I I trust that you've probably been to a wedding. And these verses are often read at weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. That that deal. I I, I trust that you've heard that at some point. I want to point your attention to uh, one sentence in there. It's in a box at the top of your outline, and it says this. Love, it says it, but it means love. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. And those of you who were here last week, you're saying, but I thought this message was going to be about sex. (laughs) It is. Uh, We'll we'll get there. But I want to start with this. How many of you uh, know someone, you're sitting next to someone without causing a scene, uh, that is a little bit more on the truth, black and white, I know what's right and wrong kind of side of the spectrum. You know what I mean? They're kind of a, they're a justice person, they're a truth person, there's a, I know the way and this is the way. It goes all the way to the dishwasher. Like this is how you load the dishwasher, 
your way is wrong, this way is right. You know what I'm saying? There are people like that that are just sure about the way they do things and what can be interpreted as the right way if they say so. But how many of you also know that there is a danger and a possibility that in relationships you can be right and still be wrong? That you, that you can win the argument and lose the battle. That, that you can be in the position that's justified and you got it, you got it, you know, right, that person's wrong, you have proof in a text message, and, and still, because of the way you handled it, you lose, because you lost with the person, because you put this, this truth ahead of the person, the relationship. I want to tell you a story today. Uh, from the life of just go ahead, guys. Just do it. We're gonna we're gonna sit there. We're gonna there's there's yellow there's well there's yellow tape on these seats, uh, and I think it's just the library. They don't trust me um, <laughs> falling off, or or it's the splash zone for spitting, and they don't think that that's sanitary. But you can totally just embrace it, and and we'll be we'll be fine. But you've been warned. I mean, it says caution, so. <laughs> If anything does happen, there's, there's that. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a story from the, uh, from the life of Jesus. It's a controversial story, and you will see why, but I want to give you the context. We're going to be in uh, John chapter 8. John is one of the gospels, one of the guys that talked about Jesus' life, what he did, what he said when he was on the earth walking and doing his thing. Uh, chapter 8 is where we're going to be, but chapter 7 is the context. In chapter 7, there's this festival that's going on. They call it the Feast of the Tabernacles. Say tabernacle. Tabernacle. It's just fun to say, right? It's like Francisco. You know, it's, it, you just <laughs> tabernacle. So there's a Feast of the Tabernacles that's going on. It's a seven-day feast. Things get crazy. Uh, they party for seven days in a row, and they do that to commemorate an event. The, the good Jewish boy-girl family, they, they take this tabernacle feast seriously. It happens somewhere in late September, early October. It would shift each year just like our Easter does. And they would, they would throw a party to remember the God who brought them out of Egypt. Egypt, slavery, that whole, that whole story. They would do the Feast of the Tabernacles to commemorate, to remember the God who brought them out of slavery and was with them as they journeyed through the desert. The God who tabernacled with them, was alongside, was engaged, was with so that's the party that's just been thrown. That's, the, that's what's just been going on. Tuck that away. Remember that party. And then we see like the very next day or just a few days later, our story takes place. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Let me just tell you this. You'll see if you're looking from like a, a real Bible with paper and stuff, you might see that, that, there's, that there's like an asterisk. There's, there's a little star by this section because it'll, it says that in some of the early manuscripts, they, they left out this story, these 11 verses. 
So some of the early manuscripts left out this story that we're about to read. It's, it's famously called, you know, the Jesus and the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, which means cheating on your spouse. And, uh, and so some of them left it out of the Bible originally. And St. Augustine, this famous saint guy, says the reason he believes that they left it out was that religious leaders in the early church, he says, they left this story out because they thought it could be misinterpreted as condoning adultery or that Jesus was too generous in his mercy and grace. <laughs> so since the very beginning, when people were trying to figure out to put the Bible together, there were people, religious people, who thought Jesus was too generous in his mercy and grace, and they were willing to leave this story out because they thought it caused more trouble than was helpful. But the truth won out, and other historians and leaders, they were like, no, 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 this is real. Let's put this in the book. And so we read it. Gen or John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Jesus returned from the festival of tabernacles to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. That happened all the time. People just flocked to Jesus, and he taught them. He, he, was, he was just magnetic like that. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Now imagine that, because we're a crowd. Imagine this scene. Jesus is doing what Jesus does, and he's just dropping gems and just astounding people. They're spellbound. They're like, who is this guy? It's like he knows secrets of the universe or something, and they're just like hanging on every word. There's a lot of politicians talking right now, and it just sounds like wah, 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 because they're saying the same stuff over and over. You're like, can you say something different and insightful? It happens constantly, and yet Jesus, everything he said, people were just like amazed by. They said, he doesn't talk like our other religious leaders. He doesn't talk like other rabbis. We've heard really articulate and inspiring people, and Jesus is different. And so they were, they were just gathering around him, like all day, waiting for the next gem that he would just drop that would change their life. And then Jesus, out of the corner of his eye, sees this little mob coming in. And he, I'm sure, knows what's happening. And so he wraps up the point that he's making just in time for these guys to throw this woman in the middle of the crowd. So imagine that you're just there minding your own business, listening to the, G the genius Jesus, and this woman who was, remember, caught in the act of adultery. Like the act. <laughs> like while it was happening. So she's not wearing much. Maybe they threw a shawl over her or something, and then they throw her in front of a crowd, and it's awkward. And she is absolutely, completely humiliated. And there she stands. Now, a scene has been caused. You know what I mean? It is a scene. And 
what I want you to consider for a moment is that religious leaders, like we just read about, these are religious leaders, teachers of the law, Pharisees, leaders in that Jewish faith in that day. Religious people have a tendency, a mindset, that likes to make hot-button issues in the culture public. And sex has always been a hot-button issue. It was then, it's still now. And there is a legalistic mindset. And legalism, you know, but it just let me just say it out loud. It means that you value the action more than the heart, the rules more than the relationship. And that mindset, probably all of us struggle with it at some level, that mindset likes to make issues of morality, issues of sin, they like to make it a public thing. They like to throw it out in the middle of everybody else. They're willing to make an example of somebody to let the truth win out in their minds. They're willing to humiliate somebody because after all, they say things like, a sin is a sin. They had it coming. They made the choice. You know, this is just what happens. Humiliation is a part of it. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm making it worse, but it's, you know, it's a part of it. They also like to take to social media and say things and post things and talk really loudly with all caps and stuff like that when some public figure fails. They like to make these kinds of volatile, hot-button issues public issues. You see it right now with guys like Bill Cosby, even Peyton Manning. People get really opinionated and want to say stuff about it. And it's almost like throwing them naked into the middle of a crowd. And that, I'm not condemning. I, I've been there. I've done that kind of stuff myself. But it's a mindset. It's a legalistic, religious mindset. And I just want to expose it for what it is so that we can see how Jesus responds in that exact situation. Verse 4. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. So here's, here's the dilemma. The Jewish law said that if you're caught in the act of adultery and there's witnesses that you can be stoned, that, that, that's acceptable under that law, they decided... And so they're trapping Jesus and willing to humiliate this woman to trap Jesus. And if Jesus says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Yeah, just, just let her go. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a merciful guy. I'm a grace guy. Then he's proven that he doesn't respect their law. And then they would kick him out and say, see, he doesn't respect the law. He's not a Jewish guy. He's not really a rabbi. He's not really a teacher of our moral tradition and faith. Don't, don't listen to anything he says. But if he was to say, okay, stoner, go ahead, just get her. I mean, 
then he's also in trouble because the Romans, they're occupied by Rome, by the Roman soldiers. The Romans have decided that no one else can kill people but them. They're the kill people specialists. And so you Jews don't get to kill people. Only we get to decide when someone dies. And they, they were famous for their crucifixions and their crosses. That was Rome. That was their thing. And so Jesus was in what seemed like a no-win situation. By the way, where's the guy that she had. It takes two, you know, for there to be an adulterous thing happening here. A lot of people think, a lot of people think that the guy was actually there, that maybe he was even one of the religious leaders or their buddies, because they were doing this whole thing to trap Jesus. And they would kind of maybe bring them out in a pinch if they needed them, like for extra ammo. No, 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 we saw it, really, like I was actually there. And, <laughs> but for now, it's just the woman, we're willing to sacrifice the woman if we can get to Jesus. Because, after all, he, we don't like this Jesus. This is the religious people's mind. We don't like him. He hangs out with drunks and prostitutes and, like, tells them that there's hope for them. He cares about people who are just a, a mess. And, and he spends more time with those kind of people than he does with us religious people. We don't like him. He's too loving. He's too full of grace and mercy. We want him out. He's an inconvenience. He's screwing up our religious vibe that we've got going and the control that we have over the people. And so that's why they wanted Jesus out. So the next line says this, but Jesus in this moment, I mean, imagine like the heat of the moment, this woman still maybe no clothes on standing there, a crowd just like, what's going to happen? It says that, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. He stooped down like this and started writing in the dust. Now, no one knows what he wrote. People have ideas about it. Maybe he wrote, Jesus was here. You know? <laughs> Take a picture. One day this is going to matter. You know? <laughs> maybe, maybe he wrote down some verse from the Old Testament part of the Bible that talked about judgment. There's a verse in uh, Jeremiah that says, you who have abandoned me, I will write your name in the dust. Maybe, maybe he wrote down all the religious leaders' names. Like, I know you and what you did last summer. And, and imagine, he, imagine he does like a spreadsheet in the dirt, like the first Excel spreadsheet, and he lists all the names here and then all the sins corresponding to their name. Who knows what he did in the dirt? But what we do know was that he took the attention off the naked woman and put it on himself. We do know that he delayed judgment. We do know that he frustrated the religious people that were like, give us an answer, let's do something. And that's what they say, verse 7. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and started to write in the dust some more. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away 
one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. It was the oldest, wiser, had been around more, that walked away first because they were the first one to realize that they had just been Jesused. <laughs> like, that was our best effort. That was like, I mean, we talked to every smart person that we know and thought of the perfect orchestrated plan to trip him up and to trap him. And he just turned it on us. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he maybe like was writing our names and sins in the dirt. They just, they just walked away. There was nothing else that they could do. Because here's the thing. While religious people and kind of legalistic mindset type folks like to make issues of sin and morality public and are willing for people to be humiliated to make a point, Jesus takes those issues and he makes them personal. So the accusers leave and it's just Jesus and the woman left. The religious mindset wants lights and sirens and points fingers and Jesus finds a creative way to frustrate them and to keep it personal between him and the person. There's a couple of things, three, three things that I want to point out from this story. They're in your outline. They're quick little fill-ins. The first one is that sin traps us. Sin traps us. This is the woman who, like, I, I, she didn't anticipate her day to go that way. She probably didn't even anticipate having the affair in the first place. It started as just like a casual conversation. It's just a guy that I can confide in because home is tough. And I, I, it's, it's, it's like the whole idea of how did I get here? Sin traps us. I, I was just... I was just dabbling. I was just trying. I didn't, I didn't mean for this to happen. And you find yourself in a position that you didn't want to be. What seemed innocent has now gotten you in trouble. Sin has a way of trapping us. The second thing to consider is that shame binds us. That's what these religious people were trying to do. They were trying to shame this woman. They were trying to humiliate her. And when you are full of shame and embarrassment, you get stuck in cycles of sin. And then you find yourself, you didn't set out to become an addict, but you find yourself just like continuing in this path because shame keeps you hidden. You don't want to be exposed. You don't want to be the person in the middle that they're pointing at, saying, look how they blew it. Look what they struggle with. Look how bad they let this get. And so shame keeps us bind up and it can lead us. Instead of asking for help, instead of talking about it, it can lead us to start to point our finger at others and become the legalistic, judgmental people just so that we can keep the attention off of us because there's shame in here. Oh, well, they're, what they're doing is totally worse. Let's point at them. And then when that shame gets a grip on you, sometimes you just start to think 
weird thoughts that affect your identity and how you see yourself. You just start to think, well, I'm just someone who sleeps around. It's no big deal. It's just who I am. I'm just someone who is going to battle addiction my whole life. It's just, it's just who I am. I, don't, I can't fix this. I've tried. I can't fix this. And, or I'm just someone who uh, has these tendencies, indulges these fantasies, wh- whatever the case may be. Sin traps us, and then shame binds us and keeps us stuck there. But the good news is the third point, which is Jesus restores us. That's what he does for this woman. That's what he does in this story. It's unbelievable. Everybody leaves. All that's left is this like stunned crowd that's kind of quietly backing up. And then this woman and Jesus. And the story says that Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir she says, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Let's talk about that for a second. He says, woman. Did you notice that? You might think that that's distant or, or kind of separating himself or impersonal. It's actually not. By saying woman, he's restoring dignity. Think about what has just been destroyed. Her dignity, her reputation, her self-worth. She feels cast aside. She feels like she might as well not go on because she's no one in this town anymore. And God, Jesus, looks at her and says, woman, beautiful, created in my image, my child, He breathes life into her. The world would say slut. The world would say adulterer. The world might say deadbeat dad. The world might say addict. The world might say failure. The world might say whatever it is that maybe, maybe you sometimes hear rattling around in your head about you. And Jesus says, nope. Woman. Someone that I created. And he says, I don't condemn you. And I'm the God of the universe, so that kind of matters. Now, go leave your life of sin. So does Jesus excuse the sin? Does he pretend like having an affair is is no big deal? No. He doesn't do that. He doesn't excuse the sin. He He's God. He designed us. He designed our bodies. He designed relationships. He designed sex. He designed all of that. He knows how it works. He knows how it works best. He knows how you can be fulfilled in that. He knows how you can be empty in that. He knows how you can enjoy it. He knows how you can wreck it and have regrets. And he, he has a design, and there is a better way than the way that she chose. He doesn't disregard the better way. But he points out instead the hypocrisy of other people who act like they haven't also done the same kind of stuff. He doesn't excuse the sin. He illuminates the hypocrisy of the accusers, and he initiates relationship with the person who's been humiliated. 
Look at this verse, Matthew 5.28 says, Jesus famously said in a different place, I tell you that anyone who looks, who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's his standard. You guys want to kill this woman because she had an affair? Great. My standard is way up here. You even look at someone lustfully, and you've already done the same thing. God's standard is here, he says. You've all messed up. Quit pointing fingers at other people. So imagine, uh, imagine we got in a single file line and we all walked up on this stage one at a time. And um, you know, someone starts, you guys start because you came in late. And so <laughs> you, <clears throat> you know, you don't have to really do it, but I appreciate that you were willing. You're a gamer. So imagine that, uh, imagine that you walk up here and we, what happens is that all of this, all of these purple chairs in this floor, it, it's, it's molten lava. I mean, it's just like burning hot liquid magma, and it's, it's, uh, it's everywhere. And so what we have to do is we have to take a running start and jump from the stage, and we have to jump all of it past the last row of seats if we're going to survive, right? And so you guys would jump, and you would you know, obviously clear the TV and probably go a couple of a rows back even, and you'd be like, okay, that was a good jump and I'm burning. And so, and then I would jump, and I'd probably go like 10 rows, uh, obviously, <laughs> and, and, and get, some real, get some real distance there. Uh, and then maybe if I was kind of the legalistic jerk, I would look back at you and be like, ah, look at you guys. I, you just jumped three rows. I jumped 10 while my legs are melting off. <laughs> That's what Jesus is getting at. You're all melting If you compare yourself to a perfect standard, everybody loses, everybody dies. We're all the same. We're all in this together. God's standard is up here. We all fall short. Look at what this verse says in Romans. There is no difference between Jew or, quote, religious person or Gentile, quote, unreligious person, think partier, think, I don't care about God or faith or anything. He says, there is no difference between the two, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard, the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. All are forgiven because this Jesus that we're reading about in this story went from that place of grace and mercy and loving this woman to a cross, died on it. He was the only person who never sinned. Everyone else falls short. He was God with skin on, and he died to pay for your death and to pay for my sins. And he says, you're all in the same boat. We're all messed up. John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus does not condemn you. 
Just like he didn't condemn that woman. He is saving you. He saves you. He is still saving you. When you get off track and you go down that other way, he is still there, not to condemn you, but to bring you back. It's what he does. That's what grace means. That his death and resurrection pay for the fact that we can't jump far enough ever, no way, no how, on our own. And so he just says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. He offers us relationship. He, imagine him, imagine him holding her face and looking into her eyes and saying, neither do I condemn you. In fact, you have a good future. You can walk away from this moment and leave that life, that trap, that spiral that you were stuck in. You don't have to live that way anymore. There's more for you. It gets better from here, not worse. Yes, you've been humiliated, but I don't condemn you, and I'm the God of the universe. Remember that? So it matters. So you can go from here and have a better hope, a better future, a better life, because it's you and me now. It's you and it's me. I want you to consider an action for this week. When you leave here, next time you log on to social media or the next time there's a debate in the office or with your family and people are pointing fingers and picking up stones, would you just withdraw withdraw yourself from that situation? Would you refuse to enter in to the public stoning of somebody else? Not because they're not wrong. They could, they could very well be wrong, but because you're wrong too. Because we're all in this together. And it's the wrong mindset, the religious, legalistic mindset that wants to execute people in public. Would you instead send that person a personal note or a phone call, or meet them for coffee so that they can see that there are no stones in your hands? Would you let them see on your face just a little slight glimpse of the grace of Jesus? And to say, I'm not saying what you did doesn't matter, but what I'm saying is I don't condemn you. That it can go forward from here and still be good. That God has a way somehow in his miraculous power of working things out for good, even terrible things, and I'm with you. Because that's what Jesus said. When he said, go and leave your life of sin, he wasn't saying, go and don't sleep around anymore. He was saying, go and remember this, that it's you and me. Don't even focus on the sins. Remember that it's you and me, you and me. I've designed to live this life in connection with you, to tabernacle with you, to remind you that I've brought you out of slavery. The religious people forget that, but you don't have to forget that. And then for those of you that are here this morning and you feel like it's you, naked and ashamed in a public place, can I just tell you, This could be a moment and a morning that is a game changer for you. If you were to realize that it's really true, 
that the God who created you and designed you does not condemn you. But he holds your face and he says, woman, man, child that I made, that I have a plan and a purpose for. All your accusers are walking away. One day they're going to realize that they're all the same as you anyway. I have a plan for you. I have a hope and a future for you. It gets better from here. This isn't the end. You're my child. You're my beauty. You're my man of strength and courage. You are not an addict. There is hope. You are not defined by this situation or addiction or whatever it is. That's not who you are. This is who you are. It's you and me. We're going from here together. You're my woman. You're my man. You're my kid. I am in this with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never abandon you. We can start fresh again this morning. We can start fresh again tomorrow. This is who you are, and I am with you. That's the love that God has for you. That's what this whole thing is all about. That we're all the same. We all fall short, and we all have our hearts and lives and minds changed by looking into the face of our creator who died for us and says, I'm with you. I don't condemn you. Let's go. Let's begin again. God, we thank you for that mercy. We celebrate your grace in Jesus' name.